Welcome everyone. Thank you for being with us today. And thanks a lot for our distinguished guest. And with me are podcasters, Chris Ryan from Mind Wars, and he will be the one to introduce Andy Kaufman and Carl Moore from Made in Nature podcast, and he will introduce Dr. Tom Cohen. And all the rest of the panel is Roy Colan from Awakening and Steve Fierro of Awaken Mind. And yours truly, Grace Asagra, registered nurse of Quantum Nurse podcast. So thanks and let's move along. Well, I think um, we should get to the thing instead of introducing them separately. I think it's a case of like for anybody who doesn't know Andrew or Tom or who has been not awake over the last 12 to 15 months or there or thereabouts has been seriously out in a cave in the middle of nowhere if they hadn't heard of these people because these two incredible special doctors have been destroying and obliterating the whole COVID-19 nonsense right from the get-go themselves. So it's been incredible um, the truth that these um, two doctors speak and have been speaking and standing in their own truth and have been bringing this truth into the light more and more that every day passes by but just for those few people who have, have been further slipping into the coma day by day now is the time not to tune out and to tune into and to watch this live stream or for people later watch the recording of the podcast as we go along for those people who haven't heard of tom or who haven't heard of andy can you just give yourself just a brief brief introduction because we're going to get straight into the questions but if both of you give just a small introduction a small background on yourself just for those few just before they do fall into the coma totally So Tom, Tom or Andy, you can go first. Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm, I'm Dr. Andrew Kaufman. I'm essentially a uh, physician who has gone rogue uh, by uh, determining what is the uh, truth underlying this um, uh, fake pandemic. And uh, that's what I came here today to talk about. And yeah, Tom. my name is uh, Tom Cowan. I would say that I'm uh, an ex-doctor uh, I was a family doctor for about 37 years. Um, I went into it, uh, you know, all I can say is I, I grew up thinking I should be a doctor, but didn't like it. And it was only until I realized there was another way to be a doctor that I actually could do it. So I've been trying to figure out what's true and what isn't true in medicine. <laughs> And I found out that most of it isn't true. Uh, in fact, it's hard now to th think of something that I learned that actually is true. So that's my story. Brilliant. So I know we've lots of questions. I mean, we, quite a few to get through and all that as well. But the one that obviously you're well aware of, especially in the last couple of weeks, more so than ever, is the basically a lot of people are talking about shedding a lot of people say no we should not be using that that terminology that wording we should be use transmitting is what's going on people before christmas before these vaccines well we can't even call it vaccines um they've have been rolled out since about mid-december in the uk onwards and people said then and i know people back then said oh i got it i'm okay nothing's wrong with me but a lot of top professionals around the world were basically saying that give it at least three to six months onwards and then you will start seeing the actual well we've already seen the deaths injuries to thousands and thousands of people worldwide as it is but in more so ever the last couple of weeks is we're not talking so much about the people now getting the vaccination or the jab itself or the inoculation of death or whatever terminology we want to put on it but what we're talking about now recently is the people who have not got this jab and who are around loved ones or not even loved ones just people in their their circle and they are especially women but i do know some men as well are having serious problems um especially with enlargement of testicles they're they're complaining about that they never had this jab and are complaining this in particular we've also 
thousands and thousands of women across the world that are complaining about, especially about the menstrual cycle and all sorts of conditions happening to that itself. Do you or can any of you basically shed some light or some clarity on what you have uncovered from this yourself so far? Um, I don't know, Andy, you want me to start with that? <laughs> what? You're I, muted, Andy. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't hear Andy. You're you're muted again, Andy. How about now? Yeah. Yep. All good. Okay, great. So I guess I'll take a crack at it since I delayed things. Um, so I think this is a, a really challenging situation to look at because the truth is we don't really know if there's really an effect at all because we we certainly have heard you know secondhand or thirdhand reports of people who seem to be having some unusual symptoms and they you know somehow they are relating it to being around vaccinated people but we don't have like a data set where we could say, you know, that within a certain amount of time of their household member being vaccinated, they had these symptoms, right? So in other words, we don't have the epidemiologic information to really understand if this is a real phenomenon. We don't even know actually if there's an unusual number of these types of problems like related to menstruation or sexual functioning compared to normal. So it's really, really hard to evaluate. Now, certainly we have the situation where people who are getting vaccinated are having lots of reproductive and menstrual related issues. Um, in the UK, I think there were over 5,000 reported cases from women having these kinds of issues, which are like um, really heavy periods, having a lot of blood clots during periods, having uh, miscarriages, having uh, periods in the middle of the cycle, um, all kinds of symptoms like that, that is definitely concerning. And, you know, there have been even some scientists talking about infertility from the vaccine gene therapy uh, um, uh, products that are out right now. But I don't think we can really say, you know, that anyone is getting um, injured vicariously. And if you look at it, it's there, there's no, you know, uh, virus that's being used in this um, gene therapy injection. It's a genetic device basically to turn our bodies into some kind of factory for this what they call a spike protein which we really don't know what it is because it's, it's never been actually extracted from a virus it's only been made using uh, genetic technology recombinant uh, dna in the laboratory and but if you think about it, we have proteins that we secrete all the time in our fl body fluids and we exchange those fluids with our intimate partners. And there's no known phenomenon that I'm aware of where a protein from one person goes into another and affects them uh, in some adverse way. Like, for example, we have antibodies in our saliva. So, you know, why if we kiss somebody and then our antibodies get into their body, why wouldn't they attack their body, right? Like we never heard of anything like that happening, having an immune reaction to kissing someone. And so I don't see how it would make sense that even if the people getting vaccinated, they make this spike protein, which is foreign, you know, how could it get into someone's body and then actually cause a problem 
um, in any, you know, amount enough or, you know, when proteins are out in the environment, they get denatured very quickly. They need very special conditions to maintain their special three-dimensional shape and all of the function is related to that. In fact, Tom has really investigated this a lot about the properties of water need to be a certain way in order for the protein to fold properly and to function. So it's really difficult to even theorize how this could uh, come about. Now, I know that also people have been talking about the document from Pfizer, uh, their research protocol, where they mentioned specifically about monitoring for what they call exposures. And these exposures may be that someone is, you know, near someone who's vaccinated. But I don't think it, that people are interpreting this correctly. Like, I don't think it means that they intended to find this. And because it's a known phenomenon, I think it's kind of a standard part of a clinical trial protocol that they have to put in in order to monitor if any such events occur. Like, for example, with a drug thalidomide in the past, which is famous for causing birth defects, I think there is some possibility that an amount of it can get transferred from a, a man to the female partner and then still cause toxicity in the woman. So it may just be kind of a standard protocol, and I don't know that it means anything as significant as people are interpreting it. What are your thoughts on it, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I agree with pretty, I mean, everything Andy said. I, the other thing I think about this, because there's no way that I can know from anything that I've read, whether it's real or not real, and it's, it's, just, it's just way too soon, and there's no real mechanism. The, the only thing I would say, though, is if it does turn out to be there's something like this happening, the, the thing that I would say is it's just one more evidence that there's no, there's no possibility that there's any kind of virus involved here, right? If people are getting sick and, you know, all these companies that are making these injections are admitting that they've actually never had the virus, they've never worked with the virus, they've had no examples of the virus, they're not putting any virus or anything from a virus in any of these injections. Like, that's just a fact. I mean, <laughs> there's no, if you argue with that or disagree with that, it's, it's kind of like you can't get anywhere because that, that's what they say. Now, they say that this spike protein comes from a virus, you know, in some sort of theoretical way, but, there, but it's never been extracted from a, quote, virus. And so it's just one more evidence, if in fact it's real, which I, again, I don't know if it is, that, that's not, that viruses have nothing to do with this story. This is a genetic sequence making some sort of protein, the intention of which is to make people sick, which apparently it's actually not so bad at doing that. And whether it can that sequence somehow gets transferred to somebody else or the protein in some way that you know none of us are aware of, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. Could the uh, 5G have any effect on, say, this spike protein via, say, nanotechnology or something along those kind of lines? As we know, there is no virus, so that can't be possible, as you rightly said. So before, Hank, so I wouldn't dispute that. Um, can that have any implication on it? I mean, I don't know any any answer to that that's based in in 
fact or reality. Uh, I think there's evidence that millimeter waves are harmful. That goes back for you know decades, and they're harmful in in, a, in conjunction with other sort of metallic particles. I mean, you know, I I had a story that really convinced me of this this whole connection between electromagnetic toxicity and the metals in people's body. And, you know, like a lot of doctors say, you know, and we're taught in medical school, oh, you sh you'll learn a lot from your patients, right? Your patients are your best teachers. The trouble is, if you actually do it, I remember a study of how long doctors listen to a patient before they interrupt, and it's about 13 seconds. Now, I, I was an ER doctor for about 10 years, and I can tell you that I got it down to about 11 seconds because I, I didn't have time. And it's, if you said the word arm, I x-rayed your arm. Even if you said, oh, my arm doesn't hurt, it's too bad. If you said arm, we x-ray your arm. And I took me 11 seconds and then I could move on. But but then I, when I actually did my own medicine, I learned to listen to people. So I remember a guy who came in who spent 20 years putting in high-end Wi-Fi systems in very rich people's houses. And this was in near Santa Cruz. And he was never sick. And I asked him, you know, well, what else did you do? And he said he went surfing two hours every day. And... I, so basically, I think one of the best ways to mitigate EMF exposure is to be out in the sun and particularly to be in salt water. And then one day he fell off his surfboard, broke his arm, and then they had to put a steel plate in his, in his wrist, right, where his acupuncture meridians go through. Two weeks later, he can't get out of bed. He's on heart medicines for arrhythmias, diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, and three months later, comes into my office, you know, more or less dysfunctional, can't work, can't do anything. And of course, he couldn't surf and he couldn't go outside because, you know, he broke his arm and he had this plate. And it was like a light bulb went off in my, in my mind because you could see this, you know, he, he was mitigating the effects. And then he couldn't for because of the injury. And then this is what happened to him. So all I can say is, I, you know, I don't know what's in these so-called vaccines. I, I hear that there are metals and nanoparticles which could act as receptors. And I think there's some evidence that if the more, you know, metals you have in your body, then there's an interaction with, with, with electromagnetic waves. I mean, that's sort of how it works. And so then people get sicker. Again, I, I hate to speculate on whether that's what's happening because I don't really know. But, you know, that's why I think Andy and I are so intent on pushing and I would say proving and demonstrating or whatever word you want to say that because there is no virus, then then the somebody has to start looking into what's the problem here you know, A, is there a problem, you know, and B, who's getting the problem and why are they getting the problem? And because there's no research really done on this, we're all at a huge disadvantage. 
Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot more evidence to come out and as time goes by, to me, it, it makes sense. I don't have any medical background, but it makes sense if it was attacking the menstrual cycle because if you really know the people who's behind this for, well, centuries, really, thousands of years, you'll know that it's another form of the depopulation genocide program. So it's not just the so-called jabs that's going to be injuring people with chronic illness and death, um, either in the immediate or the, the long-term, medium to long-term future. This is obviously another way for um, stopping the, the population from growing. And of course, in the next couple of months, September, they want to roll out here in the UK for uh, kids. I mean, kids, zero. Even if people believed in this alleged virus, zero. It affects them not one bit whatsoever. But of course, they want to stop the procreation of um, from kids in that generation onwards. So it just be, it doesn't become their normal. It doesn't become the new normal. That's just their normal as they're growing into that kind of world and that environment. But I won't take up any more. What I want to do is basically pass it over to, to Roy. I know Roy has a few questions to get in here. And... Um, yeah, thanks for that, Tom and Andy. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, what I want to try and do is more delve into like the pharmaceutical companies because now there's people on the fence whether they should get an injection or not. When I investigated in Ireland, I asked about the kickbacks because I have a friend that's a top consultant there. And we've got all the pharmaceutical companies in Ireland because of uh, tax systems. And I asked, which ones don't do kickbacks? They all do. And we've seen it now as well with the, like the COVID, to get money for diagnosing it. So like you're both doctors or, you know, Tom, you are doctors. So like, how do we overcome that? Because that in itself is kind of so, saying it's a financial incentive, everything in the medical industry. Yeah, well, this is a, a very difficult problem. And this is how the leaders who are behind all of these agendas get people to cooperate, right, by essentially bribing them. So they pay for a diagnosis of COVID, they pay for the ventilators, they pay for the injections. And those people, you know, who are in the middle, they're like, oh, well, it's free money, you know, I can just keep going and uh, not think about it too much. But really their silence and acquiescence is a major problem, right? That they're directly contributing to the ongoing tyranny. But it's very, very difficult to get people to look at this. Um, I think for people who want, who don't want to look at the scientific or the medical evidence, but want to make a decision about the injection, it's quite simple to look at it as a business transaction. Because here you have a situation where something was rushed to market, there wasn't, you know, the normal safety testing done. Okay. And this, you know, could happen with any consumer product. Like imagine an automobile that was rushed to market without crash testing or safety testing, right? Or, you know, we're setting it on fire or things like that. And so you have it rushed to market with without the proper safety testing. Then you have immunity from liability, meaning that if you're injured by this product, right, you have no recourse to sue them. So, you know, go again to the car company. So let's say the car, the brakes fail while you're on the highway and you lose control of the vehicle and crash into, uh, you know, a cement embankment. Well, you, you can't sue them, <laughs> right? Because they have immunity. So, you know, the company has incentive to get a product to the market as quickly as possible, beat their competitors and no incentive for safety because they have no liability there. So, um, and then consider that the people who are directly encouraging you to uh, take this are all getting paid for telling you that. So as a business transaction, you know, do you think that this is favorable? You know, they're offering it to you for free. However, there's, they have no risk. 
that someone else is paying for it and uh, everyone's making money along the way who's encouraging you to do it. So you'd have to be pretty foolish from a business point of view to take part in this transaction. And, you know, the last thing I want to mention is that this is an experimental therapy. It's not approved by any agency. Um, it hasn't been proven to be effective or safe in any way. And normally experimental treatments are only offered to people essentially on their deathbed when they've exhausted everything else. Um, not for healthy people to prevent a basically mild illness. You know, and Tom, yeah, Tom, I'd like to know your thoughts on that. And I, I just want to be careful and clear here because I don't want to, um, present myself as some sort of paragon of virtue <laughs> because that's weird, you know. Um, but, but I can tell you a story, which is I was in medical school, you know, and most of us, I mean, didn't have much money or I certainly didn't. And, and so one day, I don't remember, I think maybe the second year medical school, a representative from Littman came to talk to the medical school class and gave everybody free stethoscopes. And there's about 100 people in my class. And let's say there was 100. Uh, what happened was they gave 99 out, and I refused to take it. Uh, because, it, you know, so, so to me, it was obvious even then, and, you know, I didn't know much about liability or any of that stuff. But, but what I knew was, I needed to be independent so I could make my own decisions and let the chips fall where they may. You know, I could be wrong or right, and I've been wrong more than I would have rather been, but, you know, not because anybody paid me to say it, right? I can be wrong on my own accord. And so I didn't take the stethoscope and spent $300, bought my own, and it's, so it's, it's really an integrity problem. Uh, and, and there's a lot of side shoots to that, like Andy said. But bottom line is, it's, it's almost like you as a doctor or any scientist or any person, you have to trust that if you choose integrity, life will be okay. In fact, it will be better in, in many ways. At least you can sleep at night. Um, and I think if people had the interest and maybe the courage to do that, they would actually find their life is a lot better. Uh, so I would really encourage people, you know, we hear all the time, well, I can't, I have this job, I'm a single mother and they're making me do the vaccine or they're gonna fire me. Uh, I hear that all the time. First of all, they're not actually making you. Uh, but second of all, it, it's a kind of, I understand the problem, right? And I'm not a single mother and I don't have that, those bills and all that. So it's easy for me to say, but there's, there's a sort of trust in the, in, I don't know, God, universe or whatever, that if I, if I choose doing what's right, as far as the best I can see right now, then I think life will, will come out okay. And so I've decided to do that. I just, and so far, so good, you know? So I think people should give it a try. 
Uh, and you may not know what's going to happen next, but something will happen. Somebody will say, oh, how about this job? Or maybe I, I've seen you. You're a high integrity person. Why don't you take care of my child here and I'll pay you twice as much? You'd be amazed how those things happen. Uh, what like I'm learning so much, even recently, just uh, looking at uh, one book, and like we've been told, because a load of the people pushing this vaccines, they're saying, "How oh, about it saved smallpox and it saved polio?" And once you start researching it, you realize that was all a lie as well. And I was looking at say the the 1918 flu virus and why so many people in their 20s to 40s were dying is because the army was actually vaccinated. So every single thing has been a lie. Is there actually any vaccine that has worked that you're aware of from any going back ever? No. Yeah, you know, so I think people don't realize that because we've all been fed a lie. And we like because people are regurgitating that. Ah, but it cured polio, it cured this. And the other thing that, unfortunately, what I'm noticing is now people are afraid to go to the hospitals because they think they're going to get this. And like a friend of mine, his father, he didn't go. And then he found out he had stage four cancer. And there's a lot of people that are actually afraid to actually go to a hospital because one, they've realized that how corrupt it is. So what's what's the best way for people that are actually getting something? Because now we're, we're in a stage that most of us can't trust doctors. Well, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think this is actually a positive thing. <laughs> because because <laughs> if, you, uh, if you look at what the, the medical industrial system actually its own research says about its own outcomes is that at a minimum, in the United States, it's uh, the third leading cause of death is medical care itself. And that's and that doesn't count some very significant things like chemotherapy and vaccines. It only counts, you know, pharmaceuticals and medical errors. So I think people looking for an alternative uh, to that is a really positive thing. Now, of course, not everyone out there is trustworthy and there are shysters and, and misguided people, but this is the real opportunity. This is the silver lining of the current situation where everything is changing and there's going to be a reset is that we have the opportunity to essentially spawn a, a new health system, which is really more akin to the old health system before Rockefeller medicine was infiltrated. And it can basically result in people, you know, being restored to true health. And this would really have to occur mostly through people's own effort and them being able to acquire new knowledge um, and work you know, with people like Tom and I and many, many others who have spent time studying this and have experience working with people to help guide people. But the truth is that except for very, very rare situations like severe trauma, there's really no need for hospital care that with the right knowledge and some basic materials, mostly from nature itself, you can handle all these issues and restore yourself um, to health in, in most, or if not almost all cases. And so I think that's uh, the kind of, of opportunity we have now and, and people can 
kind of uh, go for this, and they certainly are already because you know we're seeing this in our in our own day to day uh, you know operations. You know, uh, I don't know why I'm in storytelling mode now, but um, I I don't blame people for being scared of going. I'm scared of going to the hospital too. <laughs> I mean, I, and you know, I I also my mother uh, used to say, say, Tom, you need to get regular exams," and I said, "Well, I do. I got my last one in 1984 when I went to residency, and I have one scheduled for 2044 with <laughs> with an old doctor because." So if he dies, then, you know, I don't have to go. So that's regular. It's not often, but it's regular. And I, I mean, I've spent 30 years. So a person calls me up. Uh, I, I ended up using, for instance, this medicine called Trophanthus, which is a African seed that, that is called the gift of paradise. And it's, it, it really is helpful for people with uh heart disease, angina, even with having heart attacks. I don't know how many people over the years have, have called me up, uh, Tom, I think I'm having a heart attack. And I ask them why, and they tell me. And I didn't have an EKG where they were, so I don't know whether they were or not, or enzymes. But they, they insisted they weren't going to the hospital no matter what I said. You know, if, if I said, well, I can't treat you, you have to go to the hospital. They would just hang up. And <laughs> else, I so I would say, well, off the cuff, why don't we take Strophanthus, you know, a capsule every 15 minutes and then call me back in an hour. And I don't know how many people there were, but there was not a, not just a few. And as far as I know, they all were fine. I mean, I don't know, you know, not maybe in 10 years, but more or less. And, you know, when people say that things like, yeah, you know, so this guy has stage four cancer and, uh, oh, heaven forbid, he couldn't go to the hospital. I mean, what are they going to do in the hospital? They, we don't have anything that helps anybody with stage four cancer. They give them morphine and they don't have so much pain, which you could do that or something like that at home. You know, we, we could have a rational system. Uh, and like Andy said, you know, I tell people, you go to the hospital when you got a knife sticking out of your leg and Hannah and, and Hugh can't get it out. Uh, then you go. and uh, But you could even in that situation, I, I've been trying to make deals with surgeons, you know, in case I have things sticking out of my leg. Because uh, they, they can do that. You know, they can cut it out or pull it out and sew it up. Uh, so w we could do this if we wanted to. We just don't want to. Oh, brilliant. Listen, thank you, gentlemen. I shall pass it on to Carol. Oh, great. Thanks, Roy. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Um, <clears throat> this is the first time talking to you. I've, I've seen you on YouTube or BitChute, and so I have to wake up and realize you're ac I'm actually talking to you. My, my question is regards this idea of contagion. <clears throat> and when I was reviewing this, I was going, well, you guys are taking the position there's no virus. So if there's no virus, there's probably no contagion. However, just to stand back a bit, um, do you see a contagious element? I mean, this thing uh, like Chris opened up with being in the proxy of those who are vaccinated, there's a contagious element. Um, and so 
just bear with me. I'm thinking, for example, they describe in viruses in general, not necessarily COVID, whether it exists or not, but virus in general, uh, they're of the size of quantum particles. You're getting down to that size, you know, a couple of nanometers across and, and much longer. And uh, particles of that size now have been demonstrated to have quantum properties, meaning they have a, an energy aspect. And so thinking about this, I'm, I'm looking in the history or examples where uh, I can't remember the exact one where there was a family with cancer and a child had to stay with them and the child got cancer. It's not contagious cancer. Yes, it was the environment, the energetic environment um, that probably brought them into that uh, disease state. And oppositely, I think the opposite happens as well. There's also things like the Spanish flu. When that um, took off in 1918 or thereabouts, it occurred all over the world very quickly. And some people say it happened almost spontaneously, much faster than, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, people could travel by train or horse or boat. So I'm wondering about this energy aspect. And if it's not, because we tend to talk about the virus as a particle, a particle, a particle. But if it's an energy thing, uh, you start to go into uh, a resonance. And so people who may be, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work this out because um, you're saying there's no virus and, and yet we see things where uh, people influence other in various ways. There's this connection. So if it's not a virus, a particle, is it sort of a taint, a bad energy that can be transferred from people through some sort of energy system? Um, so I just bring it into an energy realm, and I'm not, and 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 perhaps in order for you to comment on it, I should probably ask: um, Do you think it would be a better way to view viruses if they, well, you don't take that position, contagion in terms of energy? Uh, and are you saying that no viruses exist, whatever? And so, how would you explain a contagious element? Any of you guys? Why don't you go, Tom? Okay. You wrote a book about this, I think. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, so so it's interesting because I actually, um, I didn't actually want the title to be The Contagion Myth uh, because I think that, it, and I, I mean, I can see the point of saying that, uh, but my point was not to say that that things, what do I mean by things? I mean like symptoms or experiences, that's a better word, are not transmissible between people, right? I mean, if you, people yawn, then often other people in the room yawn. And people are happy, other people in the room are happy. And if people are sad or, you know, downer type people, then that can affect other people as well. And even things like, you know, you put 20 women, uh, 20, 20 year old women in a cabin for a year. And a lot of times they'll all menstruate at the same time. And somehow there's something transmissible about that. So it's, it's not that things aren't shared between living beings, right? It's that this, this conception called a virus. Now, you you can sort of say all you want. Well, yeah, virus is is 
meant to be an energetic, you know, signal. You can say that, but that's not what normal medicine says. They say it's a particle. That's why you put people on masks, because it stops the particle from coming out. The, the virus is conceived of as a thing. Now, why is that? It's because, you know, and, and Andy can correct me if it wasn't his experience, but we are told in medical school and in science in the United, in all over the world, as far as I know, that nothing else exists in the world but physical substance, period. And if you suggest that there's something else in the world besides physical substance, you are laughed at. Now, the interesting thing about that is nobody actually <laughs> believes that because you can ask a heart surgeon, you know, who believes that and has taught that, you know, do you love your wife and children? And, and they say, well, everything that exists and everything that we study in medicine is a physical thing that can be measured, right? That's the rules of the game. So do you love your wife? Yes. How much? Well, 12, so not 13. And do you love them with all your heart? Yes. So he just dissected somebody's heart. Where's the love in that heart? My contention, I could be wrong, but there is nothing called love in your heart. Uh, because yet everybody lives their life as if it exists, right? You cannot live if you didn't uh, base your life on these sort of qualitative assessments and experiences. And those are clearly shared between people and people and dogs and trees and other trees. They share all kinds of information in all kinds of ways. But that is nothing to do with what modern scientists, doctors are calling viruses. Nothing. And the reality is the whole theory of science, which is that we're made out of solid particles, which by the way, then they say, well, you got this nucleus here and then uh, the electrons somewhere over in Poughkeepsie, uh, that would be the scale. So what's between the nucleus and the electron? Well, nothing. Well, how come I can't stick my finger through my leg then if I'm made of nothing? Well, yeah, but sometimes you're just made of waves, which is even more nothing. So the whole thing, frankly, doesn't make any sense. And so then you end up with the conclusion that our science is, is, a, is a, well, I hate to use the word fairy tale because that's actually true renditions of life. It's a misconception. It has nothing to do with reality. The same as viruses are a misconception. The same as lipid bilayer cell membranes are a misconception. <clears throat> the same as ribosomes are a misconception. The same as DNA makes RNA makes protein, and that's the only way it works. That's a misconception. But these are all things that we're, we're taught to believe are physical, factual reality, and then in, on more clear scientific investigation, they turn out to be a myth. So the reality is things are transmitted between people. I'm not sure that that's why mostly people get sick. I think mostly 
the people in the same house are exposed to the same, you know, toxins and, and toxins can be emotional toxins, right? You can bully somebody into being sick. You can, you can harass them and criticize them. And those are, are those things, you know, the particles that make people sick? I don't think so. And I'd love to see the evidence that they are. But clearly, they make people sick. And, you know, not to get all sort of religious or biblical about it, but I must say the idea that, uh, that the word becomes flesh. In other words, it starts with consciousness or energy. And that actually, in some mysterious way, which I don't understand, somehow gets uh, down, I don't know what the right word, incarnated into the physical body. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I just want to be clear, it's nothing to do with the sort of contagious virus. That particle idea is a misconception, period. Yeah, yeah. And, and you talk you about, about So I suppose if there's no, just obviously we're all connected. And, and just to remark on that thing with the nucleus, and the electron, it's all empty space, but the nucleus is, it's 99.99% empty space. That's what we're taught, but that's not the truth. It's all empty space. And when you drive a knife into your leg, it is empty space. You're just feeling the electrical fields repulsing, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. getting back to the contagion thing, this, it's so we, we're connected, we have an influence. So if there's no real virus, I definitely some, see something sweeping the planet. Uh, I call it the mind virus, the perceptions of people. So are we influencing us in sort of a mass hysteria and we're sort of locking our, you know, due to the internet, we're now able to, you know, we jump at our own shadow. Um, have we brought ourselves into that kind of state? And is that, um, would you see that as contagion? We're getting away from the virus stuff now. So, um, but it's just this idea of what's going on, how things can spread amongst humanity. Uh, and perhaps how do we how do we break that cycle? Well, Carl, you know, this is a very interesting uh, area and there actually is a field of sociology that looks at this, you know, so-called social contagion. And, you know, just to to follow up a little bit on what Tom said, uh, you know, with respect to physics and the materialist uh, philosophy of science, you know, I think we should mention the double slit experiment because this is an experiment, right, where there's an electron beam being shot through two slits, and then there's a photographic plate on the other side. And the electrons, as we, you know, according to quantum theory, can either be a particle or a wave. And you see a pattern on the photographic plate that shows both particle and wave properties, right? It's like the electron is undifferentiated. However, when someone, a person, is observing the experiment, suddenly the result changes, and now the electron commits to either a particle or a wave, which are seen as different patterns on the photographic plate. So our consciousness influences the behavior of something in the material world, right? But yet our consciousness is not a material aspect. And, you know, this is known as the observer effect, but this is what I think you know, can play out in real life is that we have influence on each other in unknown ways. And some of these, we, you know, there are some things that have been studied, uh, such as pheromones, for example, but mostly we really have no 
conceptualization because all of our understanding, you know, is built on this materialist um, backbone, which can't explain these unique things uh, in our day-to-day -day and human experience. It's interesting, just to comment on, on, on that idea of consciousness as a field. Um, I was delighted when I was reviewing this, I was delighted to see Tom uh, reading some abstract, or, or reading, I forget where I read it actually. Uh, it was, you were saying that ribosomes don't actually exist and that the RNA is transcribed into a protein. Um, uh, it may be some things code for collagen, but then you went on to say that uh, the proteins come within the, in the in the cell due to uh, free amino acids, structured water, and a conscious conscious field, an energy field. And I went, yes, um, that's really good because it's you know as Einstein said, it's it's the particle. The sole governing property of the particle is the field. And so this is the terrain theory of you know health and stuff like that and the pleomorphic theory and you can extend that to the earth and so i'm wondering then again the influence of a field if the field has such vibrational qualities to manifest illness um anywhere in the earth so i'm getting back to this energy thing again but it was the water uh, which seems to tap into this it seems to be uh, more important than dna and therefore Perhaps what role does water play in this virus? Or can water, uh, uh, not the word defeat, flush, overcome? Do you, do you see water playing a big role in eradicating? But then again, there's no virus. <laughs> um, there's no virus, yeah. but the water doesn't need to overcome a virus, that's for sure. But um, Yeah, because there's no virus. Um, yeah, so. I mean, all, all I can say, you know, I when uh, I was maybe six months ago when I was told, told slash challenged to read the work of, uh, of a guy named Harold Hillman and that it would, re re it would make me rethink everything I thought in biology. Uh, and so I spent the next month, probably read 2000 pages and then read it again, most of it. And the you know it's really all about logic and common sense and the real principles of science so um the, so when you talk about whether ribosome and ribosomes are a, a crucial part of this story because that's where the rna is is translated into proteins and so if ribosomes don't exist then we've got a problem here and, you know, he, he goes back in his books and in his lectures to the original, you know, paper where ribosomes were described. And they were only described as being seen by an electron microscope, which is itself suspect. Because in order to make an electron mic micrograph picture, you have to go through staining and freezing and electron beams. And it has very little resemblance to anything in a living tissue. And what he found was that every picture of a ribosome was a perfect circle that had a sort of black ring around it. So it's a perfect black ring. And if you realize that this was a centrifuge or a, a, a essentially a blended sample, so that the tissue was blended in order to create this picture, if it was a perfect circle on a two-dimensional picture, it must have been a sphere 
in, in real life. And then if you think about, if you put an orange in a blender, you're not gonna get only perfect circles, right? And yet that's all you see. Now he had a whole 30 pages of, of explanation besides this you know, geometry of it as to why it could only be that this structure that they were seeing was actually an artifact of the electron microscope staining and, and processing process. And he did a lot of control experiments to see every step of the way whether you would get the same thing. And what to answer your question, at the end of the day, the only thing that he said you could prove exists in a living tissue, say, or a cell, was a very thin membrane and then organized water with uh, some stuff in it like minerals and amino acids and maybe nucleotides, a thin ribosome, and then a nucleus. And that's it. Everything else is probably an artifact of the staining and processing that we do in order to get those pictures. And again, I would not expect or hope anybody would believe me, but you should spend a month reading Hillman and you'll see the argument for that position. If that's true, then, then how are these things made and what's the controlling you know, influence and I would, I, that's why I came to the conclusion as a hypothesis that it's an interaction of energy or consciousness, and the water is the receiver of that. It's like the radio. It's like, and so we think in modern science that somehow this, the person who's talking on the radio lives in the radio. But everybody knows there is no person in the radio. There's a receiver there's a signal from the outside, and if the radio is tuned, it creates a nice sound like music or some people talking about viruses. Um, and if the radio is wonky, which is the scientific word for you know disorganized, uh, then you can't receive the signal and you get static. And I would call that a kind of unifying theory of disease that we have for a whole lot of reasons, toxins, you know, other influences, disordered water, which can't be a, a receiver, combined with energies that should be from the sun and the moon and your dog and your good friends and smiles and everything else, those interact, they use the stuff in the, in the dissolved cytoplasm to make, to make life. That's the water biology. And I think that's actually as close to a realistic picture as I can come up with now. Interestingly, the whole, this whole COVID thing is an attempt to make us a silica-based, quartz-based biology. And the difference is quartz can't grow or change or evolve. And so you're then stuck with just adding more and more mostly useless bits of information, which is exactly how most people live yeah absolutely water water is also dynamic it moves and when it yeah. moves it can go here and when it does that there's something just mentioning that water also forms structures things called coherent domains yeah. millions of molecules that fall into a lower energy state and can retain information and broadcast it so there's right. that whole other thing and drives biochemical 
reactions. But that's another discussion. I'm taking up some time here. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm going to pass you on to Chris. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you, man, Steve. <laughs> yeah, hey. That's I'm at okay. Steve, sorry. A lot of my questions were sort of already answered. In, in the line of the um, contagion and stuff, it, <coughs> if it's true, whatever the hypoxic type of, you know, condition that this uh, disease is causing, if people do become, I guess, if a cytokine storm even exists, <coughs> How do they have a signature, similar, hypoxic, uh, I guess, uh, explosion of the lungs? Where does that, where, where is the programming from that coming? Is it something we're breathing in the air that is certain toxin? Is it something maybe we were, that was injected in a flu shot? Um, it, is, it, is there even a signature um, hypoxic reaction? Because I don't know if that's even true to this, um, you know, condition. So I'm sort of wondering and then I'm, i have more i want to sort of go on the reverse side of what causes disease because i my main questions were on contagion but for for what i saw I, I did see some people in the icus where they really you know they couldn't absorb oxygen and they the last thing they needed was a a ventilator and there was this hypoxic reaction as if they were put on mount everest now how does that what's causing that well um let me take a crack at this one um you know First of all, it, you know, there's, it's really important that to realize that if we, you know, continue to think there's a virus and blame these things on it, we'll never know what's the true cause. And essentially in the scientific establishment, that's exactly what's happening. So no one is looking for alternative causes of things. But this particular thing about, you know, hypoxia being suddenly more prevalent or something like that, I don't see any actual evidence of that except for one video from over a year ago from one doctor who described a few cases. So in other words, I didn't see any review of a thousand cases like this. Uh, where it's different from any other time, because normally when people come to the hospital with respiratory symptoms, they have low oxygen. And there are many, many things that can cause that. Uh, if you have any type of pneumonia, there is fluid in the lungs and it interferes with the exchange of gas. So you can get various types of respiratory conditions. You can't get rid of enough CO2 and you get a respiratory acidosis and you can also not absorb enough oxygen. Now, there's also other things like uh, pulmonary embolism, a blood clot in the lungs and many other conditions, lung cancer that can cause low oxygen and even a panic attack or significant anxiety uh, can cause low oxygen, asthma attacks, many, many things, right? So we don't really know if there's a rise in this symptom or if these things that are normally the cause of that are responsible. What, what we do know is that they were using ventilators in a totally new way, putting people on ventilators who are fully awake and conscious um, and skipping all these intermediate steps of different degrees of oxygen and then using machines that are less invasive than a ventilator because in order to put someone on a ventilator who's awake and conscious and breathing on their own, you have to first paralyze them so they stop breathing on their own. And then you have to put them under general anesthesia. And these things are, you know, extremely um, harmful uh, procedures. Uh, 
So I think it's also important to just look overall because, you know, they have identified this disease, COVID-19, which is really based on this virus. And we know clearly that, that there's no actual virus, but not too many people are actually saying there's no disease whatsoever. Because if I ask you, you know, if you were tasked to study this disease and you to collect cases so that you could look at different outcomes, for example, or different symptoms. Well, how would you identify who has it? There's not one reliable measure that is in existence. You, you have no evidence of a virus that you could test for. You have a PCR, which is a meaningless test. You have symptoms which are common in all sorts of illnesses that already exist. And you don't even have an autopsy finding because by and large autopsies have been prohibited. So there's no way scientifically you can even say there's any new disease at all. You can certainly look at specific policies and find deaths that are likely attributable to that, such as you know taking hospital patients out of the hospital and putting them in a nursing home where they can't care for them or putting healthy people on ventilators. Um, or just basically preventing people from getting the normal care. Like it may not, um, you know, result in premature death not to get chemotherapy at stage four cancer. But if you're someone with diabetes and you need advice on how to manage your insulin, you can actually end up overshooting your insulin and dying from that. Right. Or if you, you know, are having a heart attack and and you don't know about strepanthus, which most people don't um, you and then you're afraid to go to the hospital, you could actually die from the heart attack at home. And so those things are measurable and, um, you know, more kind of a common sense way to look at at the situation rather than, you know, seeing without any evidence. Is there some new exotic thing going on? Gotcha. Dr. Cowan, do you want to comment? Uh, most, I mean, again, you know, it's a broken record, but I agree with Andy. And um, if I had to do over again, you, you know, one of the things that's, that makes people uncomfortable and makes doctors, I think, prof profoundly uncomfortable is the stance that I know it's not that, that doesn't necessarily, I mean, I know what it is. There's a lot of times in life, you know, I've ta talked to certain examples, you know, like you see uh, holes in the ground and they say there's a plane crash and yet there's no evidence of any bodies or plane there. And I don't know what happened, but I know that it wasn't a plane crash there because every other plane crash in history, there's plane and you know a bunch of debris and a bunch of dead bodies so you know i the it's what what we have here is a profoundly unscientific culture which doesn't go through the steps of so you know let's do exactly what andy said let's do real research find out you know if there are more people who have certain you know, symptoms or signs like hypoxia than others and actually, you know, collate them and study them and find out what happened. And until we do that, it's very difficult to say, you know, what if anything is happening? I, I would say there, if there is, there's some other avenues to look, you know, many people have suggested these. 
you know, fear is one, masking is another, cyanide poisoning is another, electromagnetic fields, especially, you know, millimeter waves are another, I would say, potential uh, factor that, you know, there's some evidence that it may interfere with the ability of your mitochondria to generate ATP, which isn't energy, unlike what most people think, but it actually helps structure your water, but it acts like energy. So that all those things uh, should be studied, you know, in people who are sick to find out what is happening here. The, the disadvantage that people like Andy and I are, are laboring under when we get asked these questions is 99% of the research goes to the virus, 1% or less goes to everything else. So then we say, yeah, well, you don't have any research to show what else it is, right? Because there's no, uh, nobody's looking into it. It's, it, and that's why I say it's like a spell, you know, and we, we need to be a scientific culture that does things properly. And then we can ask questions, answer these kind of questions. And I have a lot of suggestions on where to look, you know, uh, poor diet and poor social relations and economic tyranny. I mean, we, do we know what effect that has on your physical health? I mean, it's probably not good, but I don't really know because nobody studies it. There was a book by, I think, a British guy called Bullshit Jobs. You know, 37% of Americans have a job that they say shouldn't be done, right? It's not somebody else telling them Oh, you know, your job is nonsense. They self-report that they this job that they have shouldn't exist because nothing comes out of it for anybody. Now, what are the health ramifications of a culture that has people doing that? I mean, I don't really know, but I don't think it's good. And then what if you put people in, you know, non-native electromagnetic fields all the time and have them look at screens, you know, human beings didn't look at screens 12 hours a day, you know, until very recently. Is that a good thing? I mean, I don't know, but I don't think so. Does it cause hypoxia? I, I don't know, but, but I'd, I'd be interested to find out, you know, and same with spraying chemtrails in the air and other particulate matter and, you know, heavy metals and nanoparticles and and are, could I be wrong that they're not doing that? Maybe, but I'd love to see some some actual studies to sell what you know what is actually happening here, because I don't think we have a clue. You know, just to to add slightly to that, and Tom, that was uh, really helpful. That there are a couple of pieces of information that we do know uh, about what's been happening with respect to the policy. Like, for example, they when the unemployment rate increases, there is a certain mortality that's associated with this. Now, they may not understand all the mechanism, but it's kind of obvious because it messes up your life and then that leads to bad health outcomes. And so when they instituted the business closure policies, they, they could have actually calculated on an actuarial basis the death toll associated with that. So some of these things, you know, are actually known and and studied and uh you know 
we should know better, obviously, but we don't know the mechanisms, of course, because this is, you know, done for different purposes. But it should be easy to see that, you know, these policies directly resulted in mortality and and suffering. You know, and uh, like with 1918, when there was, I would say, pretty convincing evidence that that the increase in mortality uh, happened alongside the vaccine policy, right? So, so these are not, you know, it's not like, oh, well, it's just vaccines. So we don't need to study the effect of those on mortality. This is a huge intervention in people's, you know, basic fundamental biology of which we have very little solid information as to what the effect on hypoxia or uh, or inflammatory reactions or menstrual cycles is and so we're running blind and yet we sort of discount those and if we see more and more people getting sick uh you know we need to those need to be part of the equation that's called science that's called actually figuring out what the trouble is yeah you know let me also just add about you know the 5g because you know it's directly relevant and we have here a technology that it's been known since the 70s that at that um, wavelength we can cause damage as tom described to the mitochondria um, preventing oxygen uptake and then this can lead to organ failure right and even death we know that it suppresses the bone marrow and then in recent years the same technology has been developed uh, as a weapon for crowd control purposes and other purposes and it's been deployed and you can find youtube videos where the companies boast about how effective it is and do a demonstration on video for you so all of this is known and I'm not sure, you know, how much of the intention of 5G is to actually cause us illness through these mechanisms or whether it's simply the harm of it is disregarded because of the bigger purpose. But in my analysis or my opinion is that the main purpose of this network that's going up now is for the surveillance state, for the internet of things and people. And because in order to track every single item, you know, animal, mineral, and vegetable on the planet, you need that bandwidth that is not available with the current technology. Yeah, it's that it's for data mining purposes, really. Um, would I've studied Royal Rife. I don't know if you know anything about Dr. Royal Rife, um, but just, you know, the body is supposedly 75% water and blood is only 6% of that. Just So just to put some meat on the bone to help people realize what, you know, maybe pleomorphism is and, and what causes disease through toxicity. I What I read through Rife, I don't know if it's true, is that he was able to breed cancer in rats by creating certain uh, toxicity of the interstitial uh, terrain of the rat and it was he what he thought it was you know it was a disease or you know morphine from a bacteria into a disease because of the uh, toxicity acidity and low oxygen of the terrain and that he could take that condition away and the resulting disease cancer whatever it was would go away i'm simplifying it but for for people to know we're we're mostly water and you guys were talking about how water is programmable and we're affected by emf you know it's important to note that toxicity 
and poisoning and stress and lack of nutrition alter cell function where a poison in the air that's sprayed to kill a crop could take away the you know function of an amino acid and now you have a chemical that's disrupting the entire cell function not only are you losing electrons but the the, the normal cell function from heavy metals and toxicity is totally compromised and i think it's a simple thing but people don't get that you know the food you eat the air you breathe can can compromise uh, cell function and create a you know toxicity which results in disease so um you know where i'm going with this is there's no viruses and what's really causing disease is lifestyle toxicity of, of the of the water element and condition of the body so you know what 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 do you um what do you suggest for people in terms of staying healthy um and and ways out of disease <laughs> don't poison yourself <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I studied Rife a fair amount, and I wrote about him in my cancer book. Uh, one, one of the things that was problematic was it was very difficult to get convincing evidence of the cancer cures that he claimed and talked about. I mean, I, I, I was hoping to find them, I would say, and would have loved to find them, but came away sort of unconvinced. Uh, not that not that he wasn't onto something, but uh, but I I don't know how effective his work really was. I'm not saying it wasn't, but there's there just was no real evidence that it was effective. Uh, but the other interesting thing about Rife, because people use him to sort of in a sense to support the germ theory, like he saw these these organisms that he said they caused you to have cancer. But he was also very clear that these organisms, uh, they, they were a reflection of the environment that he was putting his samples in. So in other words, if he used a certain medium or a certain you know, cell culture growth, uh, then he would get this type of bacteria that were maybe rod shaped or spherical shaped or cocci or something. And then when he, he threatened them, they would coalesce down into these smaller particles. And I don't remember his name for them, like somatids, but I don't think that's what he called them. And so they were not really the cause of anything. They were the adaptive form that those organisms came about uh, or or became depending on the conditions that they found themselves in and that's really the bottom line is now interestingly this concept of pleomorphism which it what it, for people who don't know that that's essentially an organism changing its form to become a different formed of but it's the same organism in other words you know monkeys become caterpillars now, people say, well, nobody thinks monkeys become caterpillars. And even I don't think that. And I think a lot of crazy things, but I don't even think that. Um, but, but a lot of people have seen that, you know, it, with microorganisms. They've seen the, the organism assume one form under certain conditions and then a fungal or hyphal form under another condition and then a spore form under another condition. 
which is only fair enough, you know, depending on what the organism sees, it changes its form. I, I would also point out that, you know, again, I'm not sure what word to use, but let's just use a common word. You know, God sort of threw us a bone here because he did make an easy to follow example of pleomorphism, which every six-year-old child knows, which is you got this caterpillar and then somehow it pleomorphizes, I don't know if that's a word, and goes away and dissolves its whole body and then it comes out as a butterfly. Everybody knows that. And now, uh, you know, same with tadpoles and frogs. I think that's right. Um, and so that's an example of pleomorphism, depending on the situation. And interestingly, you know, and I've had a chance to ask scientists and molecular people and geneticists, so how does that happen? And they say something very interesting. They say, well, that's the genetic program. <laughs> it's like, how do you know that? Uh, well, because it, it happens. And since everything is the genetic program, that must be a genetic program. So I said, what's the gene? Do you have a gene that, you, that did that? No, we don't know that. Uh, the reality is it's, it's pleomorphism is the way of things. Now, sometime around, I don't know, Andy might know this, 1890, they outlawed the word pleomorphism or any paper on pleomorphism in the, in the scientific literature. So if you said pleomorphism, or tried to describe it or prove it, you couldn't get published. So therefore, like always, there's no scientific research because it doesn't exist. Sensory. You get it published. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think my general question was, does does toxicity of the interstitial and the terrain cause disease? And or Yeah, and not only that, it causes specific, quote, organisms to be created you know, it, a, a virus is a misconception. You get poisoned, you break down or you secrete these particles and we call them extracellular vesicles or exosome. That's, that was mistaken for a virus. They're just poison, you're pooping out. Yeah, I'd like to add to this if I may. Yeah. Um, so with the the poisoning or toxicity right damaging the terrain and then you know what we're talking about is the response is involves pleomorphism right where there are these primordial forms that can change into all the different types of bacteria and fungi that we would recognize to go to the body and do their function but what i want to say really is that this idea of pleomorphism is really already talked about in medicine. Because as soon as I heard of this, which I was already a physician, immediately I said, well, this is just like stem cell differentiation. Because, you know, unlike, now Tom's example is really good about the caterpillar and metamorphosis, but with pleomorphosis, we're really talking about just single-celled organisms, not more complicated organisms like caterpillars. And, with stem cells, right? People know because there's stem cell therapy is really popular, but stem cells are in our body, right? And it, they're cells basically that can become any type of cell in our body. And we have different types of stem cells, um, but let's, you know, just, it doesn't matter what kind we talk about because the process is the same 
So if we talk about our blood stem cells or our bone marrow stem cells, well, they can change into white blood cells and there are actually many different types of white blood cells. And so there's different stages there's, that are different shapes. And then eventually it might get formed what's called segmented neutrophils, right? Which is a special shape. And they would also form lymphocytes, which there's different kinds and those have a totally different shape. And then it can also form red blood cells and platelets. And so we're talking about the same exact thing just with the microorganisms rather than the human cells. And remember, our bodies are actually made of a community of different organisms is how we, we think about it. We're really one community organism. And by some estimates, actually the bacterial and fungal cells outnumber our human cells 10 to one. So it's really you know important that, that we have this communication, but you see that the systems all work by the same mechanisms of pleomorphism. It's just that, that when it comes to microorganisms, that's been outlawed because it basically goes against germ theory, which is the main paradigm, but they have no problem talking about it, you know, in human biology with human cells, but essentially it's the same process. And it's, it's a pattern that is just universal in nature, as Tom pointed out. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, one real quick question. If in 1918, they were taking the, you know, mucus and everything um, and injecting it into other healthy people and no one was getting sick. Is it possible? I mean, what, and the Salk uh, polio vaccine was apparently causing polio. So if in that polio vaccine that caused polio in healthy children, what was being injected that caused polio? Well, it was some toxic soup of materials and you know, it was essentially developed that way because it was taken, originally there was a sample taken out of people with polio and then it was grown in a, a cell culture uh, of fetal cells. And, and, uh, and then, you know, that same fluid essentially was just diluted, um, but it remained in the, you know, in the vaccine itself. So there's essentially, you know, what if you look carefully at what was responsible for causing polio, it was the widespread application of pesticides. And originally it was lead arsenate, and then over time it was changed to DDT. And actually the symptoms or the expression of the neurologic disease changed when, when that changed as well. And it's, it's pretty clear from the epidemiologic evidence that this is what caused it because those are neurotoxic elements, right? We know heavy metals like lead and arsenic which were in that first preparation are toxic to the nervous system, just like mercury is. And we also know that aluminum and mercury are added to many vaccines, which are neurologic toxins. So there was some combination of toxins that were either from the initial sample and that were added during the manufacturing process that essentially resulted in the toxicity. And, you know, this, it was so bad with the first generation of the sock vaccine that it had to be pulled off the market and then the Sabin vaccine several years later uh, replaced it and that was the one that actually became more widespread but we know that since that time the oral polio vaccine especially is responsible for really causing the only cases of polio in the world and many of them have been in in india unfortunately yeah. and the other thing they did was they changed the diagnosis so 
Yes. It used to be that you had to have symptoms of paralysis for six months, and then you had polio. Uh, and then they changed, or, or no, it's the other way around. If you had symptoms for a day, then you had polio. Then after the vaccine, you had to have symptoms for six months in order to be diagnosed with polio. So that dramatically reduced the number of cases just because they changed the diagnostic criteria. And there's also, you know, when you, it, it, one of the things that I think we need to get away from these diagnostic categories and into more description of what's happening. So if you say how many people have like paralysis or have neurological disease rather than just this specific, you know, thing called polio. Well, you know, now we're talking, you know, ALS and multiple sclerosis and uh, what is it, atypical childhood paralysis or some word like that. So, you, you know, they you just change the word and then the polio went away and everybody's still weak. Not everybody, but, you know, it, so there's a lot of statistical and manipulative ways that we came to these conclusions, which are just nonsense. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, the last thing I was going to, I'm going to pass to Grace, but there's a theory that maybe organophosphate is in this injection and it's causing prion, some sort of, you know, delayed or maybe immediate prions disease, but I don't know, but I, I got to give you to Grace and thank you very much for your time. So fantastic. Thank you. Thank you all. I was smiling because I'd like to bring greetings to both of you from your viewers. They really appreciate your time and they're having their own conversation and just a few questions, but the questions that were already answered as you, as all of you were having that conversation. And I'm smiling because one of them said, how come the lady doesn't talk? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We have really made this process because I, I, you know, I, I'm still very much of a woman. I take care of the things and I like to bring to your attention what the viewer said. And um, Tom, Andy, I feel like I'm in ICU because I was in ICU for 20 years and it's always a pleasure to assist doctors, but I only enjoy doctors who are intelligent and who are really good and kind, Who, because you know, when you're under pressure in ICU, then everything works very nicely. And like um, and uh, Tom, yeah, I'm glad you you're you're not an ER doctor anymore because we usually say ER doctors want everything yesterday, <laughs> just like the surgeons. And and Andy, I'm I'm one of the nurses who loves to call psychiatrists psychiatrists <laughs> because when they're in ICU and they have that withdrawal, they have to the medical yeah. doctors will stop medications. And now they just kind of neglect all the psych meds and eventually there's much more problems. I said, we have to get a psychiatrist. And of course, each nurse will have their own favorite doctor. So for the viewers, I want you to know that if you end up in a hospital, always have find a good nurse because the good nurse will be on your side and you're, you're, good. you're good to go. And the doctors also know that. When you have a good nurse next to you, everything goes well in your procedure and patient. And back to storytelling, I wanted also to appreciate the two of you because you're not just speaking 
out about you know all of these things plus taking care of yourselves but you live you live it you know and you live that lifestyle and so i join you with that because even if when i worked as an icu nurse and all those years none of them were my doctors i would go search because before there was a physician's committee for natural medicine. So I find my doctor, I would travel long to find my doctor. And none of them gave me a jab because I will never get it because since I grew up in, a, in, in an indigenous family, and that's one advantage that I have with you is I, when I left the Philippines, I brought it with me. So when my patients, Americans or Filipinos or Asians, will be in that confusion of medications and problems, I will always ask myself, if I was in the Philippines, what would I do with limited resources? So I, I so like, like then last night, I had a conversation with my elders in their 70s and 80s. I didn't even have to tell them, none of them get the jab. And they, so I said, oh, good, good. And they said, Grace, they're, they're discriminating us. Because when we go there to the doctor, the doctor said, did you get your jab? And they said, no, we're thinking about it. They said, oh, stop thinking about it. Just get it. So I told them, no, tell them it's not your body. Okay. And back to the water. And so they're in the ocean. So I said, all I want you guys to do is keep going to the ocean, soak yourself up because that's a lot of trace minerals there. And if nothing else, and this one, I don't want anyone listeners to do it unless you know what you're doing. And I told them, ask the fishermen who will go far, far, far in the, in the, you know, far from the shore in the middle of the ocean, get a gallon of seawater and you can drink a little bit of it every day. So but that's my treatment for them because I cannot bring them purified seawater. So my, then and a nurse, people always ask a nurse what to do. So my, the, questions that be, the question that is popularly brought to me now, and I want to ask the two of you, he said, how can they avoid getting the jab? Religious, medical exemption and if you know of a group of doctors or is there a list a secret list an underground list whatever you call it that they can have that medical exemption for me 30 years ago i did my own religious exemption made my own form and went be even before my son was born i wrote down and said if you inject me if you give vaccine to my son i will sue you that's 30 years ago. So would any of you be able to guide some listeners and viewers who are looking for physicians who can help them? Well, I, I um, maybe have a little bit of a different approach to this. I think that it's everyone's responsibility to make their own decision. And if you do not want to participate in this experimental treatment, which in my opinion, would be quite foolish, then you simply have to exert your authority to make that decision. And there are a number of ways you can do this. You can certainly use the traditional you know, legal methods or hire a lawyer to sue someone. It's a violation of the Nuremberg Code to force you or coerce you to do this because it's an experimental treatment. And that is a very, very strong legal argument. Um, there are many other approaches to take. You can hold the person liable, you can use common law strategies, you can look for another job. 
you can say that I'm not going to work for someone who would try to impose such tyranny upon me. So there are many, many choices, but the, the one thing that you should never do is compromise your own integrity and your own body just to go along with someone else's agenda. Yeah, I don't have much to add with that, that except I just think, like I said earlier, all, all I know is I've been amazed in my life when I just say, you know, what what is true for me? And then I just do it and I don't even know what's going to happen from that. Inevitably, something happens that that makes that even better than I could have imagined. And once you realize that is actually the way the world works, life becomes a lot easier. And all these other strategies, you know, I mean, I'm all for whatever anybody wants to do, but that's really the key. You decide, it'll, you'll figure it out. Thank you so much. And that's also the same thing that I always tell people, you know, you do what you need to do, just like choices of diet, right? Many diets, it's up to you. Be responsible, whatever you feel, you can change, you can do this, you can do that, but don't dictate me for what I need to do for myself. And I won't dictate you. I may share with you what I'm doing because it works for me. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I will always say I'm a role model for healthy longevity. So that's it. <laughs> and if we are run out of time, but it would be, it's really so wonderful that both of you are here and whatever in the future we can help you in any way like this we have fun to do it together and so thank you so much and any last wisdom that you guys want to say or make an announcement please feel free yeah well i think you've been putting up that uh tom and i uh, have a special uh event that we're giving together um on saturday may 15th and uh, we're going to go over some of the research um, in more detail with re respect to uh, the, the genome and the genetic variants with about the vaccine and about pathogenic priming. So, uh, you know, it's been really popular and uh, we, you know, if anyone still wants to sign up, please uh, check out the link. We're, we're pretty excited. Uh, we like uh, working together and really appreciate that you uh, had us both on uh, today to share our perspective. Yes. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you so much. Take care of yourselves. Do what you need to do. Don't limit your imagination because once you limit your imagination because of fear, then that's what's going to happen. Okay? So imagine what you want to happen. In my language, I say mabalos. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, guys. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks.